Have you ever tried to keep a secret? It's not easy, right? A friend just let you in on some juicy gossip and swore you to secrecy. You're dying to tell other people, but you cannot do it. You promised you wouldn't. We all know how this eventually ends up. You finally tell another friend who promises not to say anything, and pretty soon, your entire circle knows the secret you were sworn to protect. Usually the secrets seem like a big deal, but they are ultimately unforgettable over time. Now, imagine you were keeping a secret about yourself. A secret that you're not proud of. Something heinous you did in the past. Something that would cause people to look at you differently if they found out. It is something you promised yourself that no matter what, you couldn't tell anyone. You managed to get away with whatever it was you were hiding from the world, but the guilt has been eating away at you every day, week, month, and year of your life. You're always living in fear that someone will eventually find out. Luckily, you managed to keep this secret your entire life, despite the mental and physical toll it has taken. As you lie on your deathbed, you realize you cannot take this secret to the other side. You need to tell someone about it. You need it off your conscience. So you lean over, grab the intention of the closest person you can find, and finally unburden yourself with this weight that you've been holding on to for so long. And the person you told is like, say what? Throughout history, there are many document cases of these bedside confessions. Some of them are disturbing, some of them are strange, some are hilarious, but all of them are some weird. of Season 4 of the Some Weird Podcast, a podcast about strange and unusual stories told by us, a sister and brother team hailing from Newfoundland. I am your co-host, Chrissy. And I'm your co-host, Barry. This episode, we're diving into deathbed confessions. But before we get into our stories, we have our very first special guest with us today. You can hear him weekly on the Narbos and Broomheads podcast. He's the Ted of the Ted and Barry Social Distant Trivia. Your best friend of mine, Ted. How are you, bud? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, Ted. I don't know if our listeners from around the world know this or not, but Newfoundland is so small that we don't have last names. There's one Barry, one Ted, one Chrissy. So we have the Ted of Newfoundland today. I heard, though, there's another one. He's on the West Coast somewhere, but I'm Trivia Ted. (laughs) That's what my mother calls me. (laughs) Excellent. We're happy to have Ted along with us today. I think we're going to start out with Ted has a special treat or a special surprise for us. Yes, our season three finale, we actually uh, did two truths and a lie about Newfoundland. And we had a good time with it. We got some good feedback on it. So we decided we were going to do that again. But instead of myself or Chrissy making them up, we decided to bring Ted on. And Ted's made up some bedside confessions, and he has some real ones. He's going to give them to us, and we are going to do some guessing. Now, Ted, I think when we had our two truths and a lie, I think you said that you were able to pick our lies. Yes, I think I was almost uh, 100%. Okay. I think. So we weren't able to trick you. Let's see if you can trick us. Okay, I like this. These are true or false, so it's not one out of three. It's like just one for one. You'll do a story, and then we have to guess true or false? Yes. And do we have to agree? Is this like are me and Barry a team, or can we like break off? You can talk it out. Okay. Okay. Want to try that, Bear? All right. It's the Some Weird Podcast versus Ted. Let's see who's the winner, the grudge match. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Step right up. Here we go. Okay, so this is a short one. The first one will start to just to jump in. Albert Einstein's last words may or may not have been a confession to a series of heinous crimes. He said them in German, and the attending nurse didn't understand German. So Albert Einstein's words were left as a mystery. Hmm. Hmm. Let's talk this out a little bit. 
he created the A-bomb, which killed a lot of people. So I guess in, in, in that, <laughs> he's probably, that probably helped weighed on his mind, right? So the question is, did Albert Einstein's last words, it could have been a confession, it could have been anything, we don't know, because it was in German and they didn't understand. Um, I don't know, Barry, what do you think? I think that's very reasonable to think that before he died, he rambled on something in, in German that mm -hmm. he, was, he was hoping that person would understand what didn't. So I, I'm kind of tending to believe this one. Yeah, I think on my deathbed, I'm going to ramble out some weird bay talk and no one's going to know what I'm saying down here in New Jersey. <laughs> so I, I'll say, I'll agree. I think it's true. Mm, that is correct. That is true. Oh, right. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Well done. Well done. Another one? Let's do it. Okay, in 1995, a woman named Joyce Goodenair was brutally murdered. The case went cold. In 2021, inmate James Washington, who was in his third year of a 15-year sentence, clutched his chest and said, I'm coming, Elizabeth. No, that's not true. He didn't say that. That would be a red <laughs> fox. Yeah, got And thought he was on his way off his mortal coil. As he lay there in agony, he confessed to the guard that I had to get something off my conscience, and you need to hear this. I killed someone. I beat her to death. Then James Washington closed his eyes and did not die, which was great news as it made him able to attend an upcoming murder trial, his own. After a three-day trial, Washington was found guilty and slapped with an automatic life sentence. True or false? Very plausible. I mean, the guy was in jail anyway, so he's, he's obviously... What was he in jail for originally? Um, assault, I believe. Okay. Um, so certainly within the realm of possibility that he murdered somebody. The way I'm thinking about this is that story had a lot of details in there. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's like, mm, Ted is a creative kind of a dude. Did he <laughs> write a, like, a nice story? Tell me the whole thing again backwards. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Sounds life automatic and with a slap guilty found Washington. Ted, you're so compliant. I didn't expect it to actually try. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I kinda of think that due to the, the level of detail and the exposition of Ted's story there that uh, this one's probably one from the, the creative mind of one Ted. <laughs> Ted from Newfoundland. <laughs> um mm -hmm. Yeah. Trivia Ted, I think you're making this one up. Yeah, I agree. This little tale is 100% true. Ooh. Oh, tie match. We gave you too much credit for your creativity. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> overestimated me. Okay, number three. In New York City, in the days following the February 26, 1993 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, Montgomery Brogan was preparing himself for a lengthy jail term. Brogan was a convicted drug dealer about to start a seven-year prison sentence, and his final hours of freedom were devoted to hanging out with his closest buddies, Jacob and Frank, and trying to prepare his girlfriend, Naturel Rivera, for his extended absence. At the end of the night, the friends found themselves in Central Park, and Monty considered himself uh, kind of a pretty boy, didn't want to go to prison, looking the way he did for fear of harassment or worse on the inside. He asked Frank to mess him up, which Frank was very averse to do. After some convincing, Frank finally, as we say in Newfoundland, beat the face off him, <laughs> giving Monty two black eyes, a broken nose, and a chipped tooth. Later that morning, Monty's father, James, proceeded to drive him upstate to deliver him to the prison to start serving his time. 
On the way, they discussed the possibility of not dropping him off at the prison and continuing west into the middle of America. Monty liked this idea, though it would mean a hard time ahead for his father, who would have to protect his son's whereabouts when he returned home. James and Monty parted ways in an undisclosed town, and Monty supposedly started a new life. Upon return to New York City, the authorities had noticed that Monty had not reported to prison. His father was interrogated. He was brought in a number of times, and he gave up a few small details, but he wouldn't give the whereabouts of his son. The most he said on the record was, he's gone west and you'll never find him. His father passed away in 2002, never revealing the location of his son. As of 2022, Montgomery Brogan is still at large. Hmm. Hmm. What was he going to prison for in upstate New York? Uh, drug dealing. Uh, heroin. So if you're going to jail for heroin, can you just be voluntarily drived up or, or are you incarcerated and transported via... Yeah, you can be driven up to jail because that's what happened in Orange is the New Black. She just like, all right, I'll show up to prison on Monday, I suppose. And then she drove on up. That's real life? It was real life, actually. That book yeah. is a memoir. Okay. And then everyone was going to jail in the United States in the early 90s for drugs. Okay. This definitely seems like a plausible thing. Yeah. Did it say anything about the father getting arrested for aiding and abetting or anything like that? No, he just said he disappeared. He doesn't know where he is. Now, they did take away his bar because he put up his bar as collateral. Oh, I see. I'm going to go with True, I think. True was my first instinct, so I'm going to go with that. Okay. This was 100% a Spike Lee joint. This was the <laughs> plot to the movie The 25th Hour, starring Edward Norton and directed by one Spike Lee. You're kidding. And written by David Benioff, who was one of the co-writers of uh, Game of Thrones. Nice. Okay. All right. Well, Game of Thrones is very believable as well. So That's right. <laughs> I think, Barry, we're revealing our movie trivia knowledge here. A lack of knowledge, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a good movie because it was a believable story, at least to us. <laughs> okay, you got us. So are we losing now? Yes, two to one for Ted. Oh, we got to kick Ted off the show now. He's kicking our asses. That's right. <laughs> All right, hit us with another one. Okay. The song, uh, The Long Black Veil... Do you know this song? No. No one knows this but you. The story is a guy gets hung and the lady's in the crowd. He doesn't say anything because he was with her, who is his best friend's wife. And he gets hung anyway because he doesn't want to tell his friend. So the song was written by songwriting duo Danny Dill and Mary John Wilkin. This song was believed to be a work of fiction. However, when Mary John died in 2006, her daughter Margaret, when cleaning out her mother's house, found a handwritten confession that the story had elements of nonfiction as her former writing partner and husband, Danny, had been sent to death row for a murder he did not commit. Uh, she could have attested to his actual alibi, but was having an affair with his brother, Donnie Dill. Danny Dill was executed in Texas in 1968, the governor of Texas, Mark White, gave Danny a posthumous pardon in 2010. Danny Dill and Donnie Dill? Yeah, his brother's Donnie Dill. <laughs> yeah, I'm calling fault to this one. I don't know about you. I kind of like the story. I think I'm going to call it true. Okay. I think it's false, but we have to be on the same page, so I'm going to go with you. Or why did you flip a coin then? No, no, we'll go true. I'm, I'm going to change my mind. We're going to say true. Ah, uh, you should have stuck with the first one because it's not. Uh, uh, it is not true. <laughs> it's all good. I threw in some some dates and some stuff just to uh, throw you off the scent. I think this one 
you can redeem yourselves. So Rudolf Hess, the last prisoner of Spandau prison in West Germany, died on August 17th in 1987. That was the prison where a lot of uh, Nazi criminals were kept. Uh, though the official cause of death was suicide, his family reasoned that since he was a frail, elderly man at the time of his death, he wouldn't have had the strength to hoist himself up to the bars of the roof of the cell in order to hang himself. His sister Anna claims that he wouldn't have killed himself as he had yet to find out who shot J.R., the finale being several years away in 1991. The prison guards went on record attesting to his Dallas obsession. The official cause of death to this day is suicide. This is my favorite one. Yeah. I hope this is false. That was a big deal, that who shot J.R. That, that captivated the nation, let's be honest. Please tell me it's false. Yeah, I'm going to say false. This is false. Yay! <laughs> no, this oh, is not true. <laughs> We're back on track. <laughs> All right. So just for anybody keeping score, it is currently three Ted, two Chrissy and Barry. Okay, cool. That was fun. We'll jump into a story here, and then we'll get back to a couple more of those. True or falses. So the story we're going to start with is the Cleveland Bank Robbery. On May 18th, 2021, Thomas Randell, Tom Riddle, if you will. No, not Tom Riddle. That was just from Harry Potter. Uh, Thomas Riddell uh, passed away from lung cancer, surrounded by his family and loved ones. Just prior to his passing, his wife of nearly 40 years asked for all his friends, co-workers, and golfing buddies to come by and say goodbye, knowing that the end was near. His friends described him as one of the nicest people they've ever met. He was a family man who always bragged about his daughter, a kind soul who wouldn't even cheat on his golf score. He was a well-liked businessman in Error, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston, and it was said that the lineup for his funeral home went around the block for visitation after his death. But what everyone didn't know about Tom was that he was born Ted Conrad, and he was wanted for over 50 years for robbing a bank in Cleveland, Ohio, all the way back in 1969. The secret and associated guilt that went along with this ate at Tom for most of his entire adult life, and he fondly confessed to his wife and daughter just before he died. So, how did Todd get away with this and be able to evade authorities for 50 years? In January of 1969, Ted Conrad got a job as a bank teller for the Society National Bank in Cleveland, Ohio. Almost immediately after getting this job, he noticed that the security at the bank was lax at best. He could constantly be talking to his buddies, and he'd say it, was, it would be very easy for him to walk into the vault with a burlap sack with a dollar sign on it, fill it up with cash, and walk out without anybody noticing. Don't talk about <laughs> your crime before you're going to do it like that, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Telltale. That's what I always think when someone's robbing a bank. They got the, the sack with the dollar sign on it. I always think about, are those retail? Like, do you go buy them somewhere? Like, what are you going to do with this? <laughs> Nothing. Put my laundry in it. Seems Why sus. do you got that raccoon mask on? <laughs> so anyway, that July, it was one day after his 20th birthday. He said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going in. So just before closing on the Friday, he walked into the vault, stuffed $215,000 into a paper bag, and walked out. That would be worth around $1.6 million today. So the bank didn't realize the money went missing until Monday morning. By that time, Conrad was all over the country making it rain. So within the first week, his girlfriend said she received letters from Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. And his thought was, in seven years, the statute of limitations for the crime would end and he could triumphantly return to Cleveland. A legend. You can just, like, go into hiding for seven years and go, Surprise, bitches, I robbed a bank, but you can't do nothing. I'm not sure how that works exactly, but unfortunately in this situation, uh, the bank pretty easily figured out who it was and he got indicted for bank robbery charges. So when that happens, you become a wanted man. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I think his logic was very flawed here. You can't rob a bank and hide for seven years and come back with a clean slate. 
say no. three Hail Marys mm-hmm. and you're good. But fortunately for Conrad, at this time, Ted Conrad, the heist happened at the same time as the Apollo 11 moon landing. And because of that, very little media attention was given to it. Like Even in Cleveland, it wasn't very well known, this story, because everyone was too busy watching people walk on the moon. Or on a soundstage. That's right. Did you know that the flag was waving and there's no air in space? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love conspiracy theories. At some point, he realized he'll never be able to return home, so he severed all ties with his three siblings, his girlfriend, and his parents. A U.S. Marshal named John Elliott was assigned to the case, and he took it personal. He was from the same part of town as Conrad, and he actually knew him personally. The same church, that type of thing. They were in the same kind of circles, and he knew who he was and knew what he did. Conrad managed to get a good head start on Elliott, and he was very disciplined and left very little leads. The last credible sighting, actually, of him was from a Cleveland-area couple who was vacationing in Hawaii, and he believed he saw there in Hawaii. That was in late 1969. Elliot traveled around the country following whatever poor leads he could for 20 years and had no luck. Elliot ended up retiring in 1990, but he was still obsessed with the case. And his son actually worked at the U.S. Marshal's office. And he, his father used to constantly show up, even when retired, pouring over case files, trying to crack this case. During the investigation, many of Conrad's friends were interviewed. And one of his buddies said that he believed Ted didn't do it for the money, which is to prove that he could do it. Mm, it sounds like Ted did it for the money, though. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Make it a raid. His friends from high school that said that Conrad was obsessed with the 1968 movie, The Thomas Crown Affair. And he did this to mimic Steve McQueen's heist in that film. So Ted uh, Conrad changed his name to the alias of Thomas Randell. It was first created in 1970 when Conrad walked into a Social Security Administration office in Boston and asked for an identification number. So it really can't be that easy. You just show up and say, I need need a social insurance number. This is my name and they give you one. Can't be that easy, can it? I guess so. And definitely in the 70s where you can just go and say, give me a number. Here you go. What's your name? Thomas Randall? Where's your ID? Don't have any. Best kind. Mr. Burns. What's your first name, Mr. Burns? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So people think that he actually chose Boston as a place to settle because that's where the Thomas Crown Affair was filmed. And he chose the name Thomas after the name of the character. So he worked in Boston as an assistant golf pro in the 1970s. Uh, He met a woman named Kelly, who he eventually married in 1982, had a daughter with. And he began a career as a car salesman and eventually retired after nearly 40 years. It isn't clear what happened to the money. Him and his wife filed for bankruptcy in 2014. And at the time, they owed $160,000 in credit card debt. So people that knew him were shocked to find out he lived a past life as a bank robber. Uh, They said, like he said, he was a gentle soul. He rarely drank and he never had a bad word to say about anyone. He rarely got angry or raised his voice. But as people started to think about it, they started remembering a few little things that seemed slightly off. And, and knowing this about him now, it started to make a little bit more sense. Number one is he always had a beard. Now, I'm certainly not saying that people with beard are criminals or anything like that. But <laughs> Was it a fake beard? <laughs> he always had a different am. beard. It's <laughs> right. It's different colors, different sizes, different styles. <laughs> he said he always wore dark glasses when being photographed while playing golf. Nothing conspicuous there. He was always reluctant to talk about his, where he grew up or his extended family. And whenever he was asked about it, he would shy away, change the subject, or said he prefers not to talk about it. People thought he must have had a bad upbringing, and they respected his privacy. What people did say was that the news of his uh, past did not change what they thought about him. They thought he was a good person, and he thought he was, you know, the man he knew was, was a great individual. And the fact that he robbed a bank back in 1969 does not in any way change how they felt about him. They wished they could play round of golf with him today, even though he passed away. So who did he confess it to? To his wife and daughter. Oh, okay. The media, obviously, when they found out about this, they wanted to interview his wife. She's declined any interviews about this. I would agree with that. Like, she didn't have any part of it, and she didn't know anything about it. You know, even if he had married 
the girlfriend, you know, the one he was writing the letters to, you could see yeah. that she would have had some knowledge of it. But it seems like he sprung forth fully formed adult and that's how she knew him. And that's, you know, she didn't yep, know sure. anything different than that. I thought you were going to say his golf buddies wish they could play a, a round of golf with him. And that was the inspiration for Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ted, not every story is based on a movie. Um, the biggest mystery of all this is what happened to the money. People say he blew it all on bad investments. Uh, I guess some people say his wife was in on it, and that's why she declined interviews. But no one really knows. Probably had hidden underneath his, you know, buried in his front yard or something like that. It seemed like he did that as a joke. He figured he'd get away with it. Then he realized, oh, shit, I'm not getting away with this. So he, he went on the lamb and, and never did get caught. Yeah, I'd say that's what happened to that guy. He probably just, it started. He did it for either a joke or just because he wanted the money. Who knows? And then it got away, and he just kept going with it. That's a cool story. I don't think I'd be able to hold a, not a lie, but uh, omit a truth like that. I don't think I'd have it I in wouldn't. me. I wouldn't. I don't think so. No. What about you, Ted? What's your biggest deep, dark secret? <laughs> just spill it right here. <laughs> <laughs> Live exclusive. I don't have any. Of course, that's what I'd say. Yeah, exactly. Clean living. So that's the story of the Cleveland bank robbery and how a man was able to keep that secret for over 50 years from his wife and daughter. Before we get into the next one, let's get into some more of Ted's interesting stories to see how well we do. Just for the uh, record, the current score is Ted 3, Barry and Chrissy 2. Let's do it. There we go. In Catholicism, the last rites are administered to a dying believer. This is also an opportunity to confess any sins they may wish to be absolved of. The tradition can also be found in Pentecostalism. However, it's called Final Thoughts. No, that's what's found on Jerry Springer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that is false. <laughs> okay. All right, good. That was good. We, we needed that gimme, I think, Barry. <laughs> I think so. And you'll have difficulty with this one, I think. Okay. So there's a man named Thomas Randall, and he died, and his wife for nearly 40 years <laughs> asked his golfing buddies to come to the house. No, was, I have the same one Barry has. You <laughs> kidding? Did you really? Yeah, yeah. I actually True. had, that was number seven. Hopefully you don't have my story. I, I don't think I will. We'll see, though. Uh, Newfoundlanders are all well aware of media magnate Jeff Sterling. His genuine concern for the human psychic liberation led to his fascination with superheroes. Canada has no superheroes, he would tell anyone who listened. Canadian kids needed their own superheroes who could teach them enlightened values, who would help them expand their consciousness and unlock the infinite divine power within themselves. And as the head of a media empire, Jeff Sterling was well positioned to give them one. Thus, Captain Canada and his cosmic guru, Captain Newfoundland, were born. The characters appeared regularly in the pages of the Newfoundland Herald in the late 1970s and started popping up on NTV in the early 80s. Captain Canada remains the mascot for the television station to this day. Everything we know about the, those strange figures dancing around in front of the green screen at 2.30 in the morning comes from two canonical sources, the Captain Newfoundland comic book, from 1981, and the epic Atlas graphic novel from 1983. The comics are notoriously hard to find, but both of them can be found in the Center of Newfoundland Studies archive at Memorial University in St. John's. On his deathbed, Jeff Sterling admitted in his final words, that was some crazy shit. I don't think that was Jeff Sterling's last words. I do agree with it. All the other stuff is true. Yeah, I do agree with it. If anybody hasn't, uh, do yourself a favor right now. Go on YouTube. 
Type in Captain Canada and Captain Newfoundland and watch the, the vignettes. Be ready to have your mind blown. Yeah, I'll agree. I, I'm going to say false. You are correct. Everything else, every other line of this is true. All right, so what's the score here now, Barry? The score now is four for us, three for Ted, and there's two left. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Okay, let's try this one. In 1922, famous Hollywood actor and director William Desmond Taylor was shot and killed. He directed such films as The Soul of Youth, Davy Crockett, The Top of New York, The Witching Hour, and Captain Kidd Jr. It became a massive scandal, and one of the great mysteries of the time was no one was ever caught for the crime. In 1964, a former stage and silent film actress named Margaret Gibson became unwell and called upon her neighbor, not for help, but to confess the murder. She never gave a reason for the shooting of Taylor. Now, it wasn't totally proven, but this was her deathbed confession. That's a true story. Sounds very plausible to me. This is a true story. Well done. I could see that going either way, but I just I had happened to read that story before. That's why I got that one. <laughs> All right. Inside knowledge. So let's see if we end up with, with six out of nine or five and four. And the final one. When Osama bin Laden was killed on May 2nd, 2011 by SEAL Team 6, body cameras picked up his final moments. When later translated, it was found that he said, don't shoot, I must find out who shot JR. It was confirmed <laughs> that a season four Dallas DVD was in the disc player in his bullet-riddled hideout. <laughs> I'm loving this theme. As much as I want to say true, uh, that got to be false. I'm going to agree with my brother on this one. This one is false. This is false. Yes, correct. <laughs> the Dallas-themed uh, Death Side Conventions is over, and the final score was six for Chrissy and Barry, three for Ted. Yay. Nice. Good job. Well done. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well done. So should we get into my story? We should. Yes, please. Let's get it done. All right, so the story that I'm going to tell you guys is about a man who mispronounced Newfoundland. Now, we all know how cringy this is. We don't like it at all. Maybe we're a little bit more lenient than this dude, though. So let me tell you the story. Before we get to that, Ted, what's the rule of how to pronounce Newfoundland? Newfoundland, understand. That's it. Not any harder than that. It is a little bit harder than that, and I'll tell you some of the history about how Newfoundland <laughs> is pronounced. Don't kill me. <laughs> it has actually evolved. Okay, here we go. In 1912, an old man named John Davis in Peoria, Oregon, was feeling the end of his life was near. Come closer, he said to whoever was standing vigil. I want to go to my maker with a clean conscience. Sure, whatever you want, you can tell me, said the non-dying person. I killed a man because he mispronounced Newfoundland. Say what now? All right. So this sounds like a terrible scene from a shitty parody skit show. <laughs> And my impression was really, really terrible. There's no no one knocking down my doors to hire me for any acting, for sure. But apparently this is a true weird story. Newfoundlanders are known for a, a lot of things, right? We're known for resiliency, a sense of self-deprecating humor, our own dialect of English, as we've talked about in the podcast before. And unfortunately, another thing we're known for is being far flung from our homes at various times. I currently live in New Jersey. Barry lived in Toronto. Ted, you've lived many different places, I think, right? Yeah, I was around. You've been around a block a few times. I've seen things, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. 
you probably can't go anywhere in the world without meeting someone who is either from Newfoundland or has some familial ties to Newfoundland. I can remember when I went to Memorial, I lived in Curtis. One of the girls that lived there, she had spent some time in Africa with like a Peace Corps type of a thing. She was in the middle of hot-ass Africa. Her truck broke down, and lo and behold, here comes someone trundling down the road, another truck to stop to help, and out comes another Newfoundlander. Unrelated, not there for the same reasons, but that's who stopped to help her in the middle of Africa. So Newfoundlanders are, are everywhere. And this was the case for the main character of my story, Mr. John Davis. But instead of saving people in Africa, he was murking some dude in the wild west of the USA. I don't know if John Davis was the first Newfoundlander of his family to move to the U.S. or if his parents were Newfoundlanders or his grandparents were Newfoundlanders, but he was tied to Newfoundland somehow. He found himself living in Texas in the later half of the 1800s. At some point in his life, he heard the call of go west, young man, and off he went to the wild west of Colorado. There, he worked as a teamster. Now, that's a person who drives a team of draft animals, not a member of the Teamsters Labor Union, a la Jimmy Hoffa. Because I read that, I'm like, I don't think the Teamsters were a thing in the 1800s. Is this a lie? Yeah. Did Ted write this? Is this, what am I looking <laughs> at here? But that's what a Teamster you is. who shot JR. <laughs> <laughs> As reported in the March 29, 1867 edition of the Rocky Mountain News, near the town of Larkspur, a fight broke out between our John Davis and a 23-year-old mill worker named William Atchison. These two men had a history of quarreling, according to the article, but this particular fight was especially petty, as it was over the correct pronunciation of Newfoundland. So one of them wanted to put emphasis upon the land, like Newfoundland, um, and the other was adamant that the found was what was stressed, like Newfoundland. So to settle this very important argument, they went into a nearby cabin to consult a dictionary because every cabin in the Wild West had a dictionary <laughs> just in on hand. Mm -hmm. This is what the article reported. I guess if we're going to look at the phonetics, which I don't know if you guys can do it, but when I see the linguistic phonetics written out, I don't know what those things all mean. <laughs> No, Whatever. I agree. No. Dots and lines and squiggly lines and all this. Exactly. But this teamster and this uh, mill worker, they were able to interpret from the dictionary what the correct pronunciation of Newfoundland should be. I don't know if they found the answer that they were looking for, but apparently they tumbled out fist of flying cartoonish in a puff of smoke. <laughs> Atchison punched Davis, who escalated by drawing his pistol and shooting his adversary. Atchison was able to get another punch in before Davis had an oh shit moment and he fled to parts unknown. Atchison died the next day and Davis was never caught. Davis lived life on the lam for the next 36 years until he himself was on his deathbed, sort of, in Oregon, where he confessed that he did actually kill a man in Colorado for mispronouncing Newfoundland. And I say sort of because while Davis was sure that he was about to die, he ended up making a full recovery. News of this bizarre deathbed confession was printed in papers all across the U.S., and eventually it reached the ears of Atchison's brother and the district attorney of Colorado Springs, who pursued Davis. No statute of limitations on manslaughter or murder, so <laughs> there you go. they were able to go after him. But we don't know if they ever got their justice that they were seeking because all of the court records of the time were destroyed in a fire. So this was back in 1912. I don't know why the death record wouldn't be stored somewhere, but apparently everything was burnt up in a fire, so nobody knows what happens. Before you go, two questions. Was the Wild West really people just shooting each other all over the place and drinking whiskey in saloons? Is that really what it was? Or is that just what I tend to believe from movies and video games? 
according to Back to the Future, I think that's about right. That's, that's right? right. And trains, some kind of wild trains. I don't know. I guess they call it the Wild West for some reason. The other thing was you said Davies ran to parts unknown. Yes. Did you know that per per capita, there's more wrestlers come from parts unknown than any other town in the world? It's specifically why I put it there. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But now I lost my spot. Hang on. Uh, Okay. But the story does not end here. So the question remains, whose pronunciation was correct? So while today we would obviously say that whoever was the person who said Newfoundland was correct. But that's not necessarily the case if we take it in the historical context for when it happened. Thanks to Philip Hiscock, an expert in Newfoundland dialect at Memorial University's Department of Folklore, I learned that the quote-unquote correct pronunciation has actually evolved. So at the time of the killing of poor Mr. Atchison, either Newfoundland or Newfoundland would have been considered correct. They were both kind of right at that time, in that context. Before 1910, Hiscock says that the most commonly accepted pronunciation was given about equal stress to each of the three components, Newfoundland. Enter Joey Smallwood, the man who was responsible for bringing our province into Canadian Confederation in 1949. He popularized the first pronunciation where found becomes fin, like Newfoundland. And that's how he said it. Yes, he kind of made it a hip way to say it. When not hanging out with weird Newfoundland gurus in Cuba, uh, Joey Smallwood (laughs) was bringing Newfoundland and Canadian Confederation and telling us how to pronounce our province name. So he would say Newfoundland. Many people born before 1970 will still use that Joey-approved new. But people born after 1970 usually say Newfoundland. And this is the most common pronunciation now, But Hiscock does point out, and we will all agree, everyone here recording this and everyone listening, that at no point ever in living history has Lund ever been correct. It's not Newfoundland. It's not Newfoundland. It's never Lund. It's always land. And to be fair to everybody who does mispronounce it, I mean, most countries or or places that end in L-A-N-D is pronounced Lund, right? Yes. It's easy to understand the mistake. Yes, it's always Lund. But for whatever reason, Newfoundland is always the stress on the land. And saying Lund is the version that's most hated by us Islanders and Labradorians. But since Atchison reportedly did not use that cringeworthy Lund, his murder was definitely not justifiable. (laughs) Don't be killing people for mispronouncing (laughs) a name. That's it. That's a story about a guy who's like, couldn't fucking take it and just murk some bitch for saying it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So there you have it, Bedside Confessions. And I'd like to thank our special guest, Ted, for joining us for this adventure. What did you think? Was it everything you thought it would be? Oh, I loved it. Thank you very much for having me. I had a larf and a harf. That's not a Newfoundland saying. That's just me. They say that every community has its own accent. So, you know, every household or person even has their own accent. So that's yours. Mm, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed your time here behind the uh, the curtain with us. Normally here, Ted, we talk about our stories if we didn't already beat them to death. So any final thoughts? Did we find out who shot JR? <laughs> or is that up in the air? I, I don't recall. No, I, I think what happened was the Dallas had a, uh, a reboot. Uh, two different people shot him. And the first one was a mistress and the second one actually killed him. But it turns out he set it all up. I don't know how he did that. I don't know. You were really paying attention to that. That's good for you. I wanted to know. Barry, what about you? Any final thoughts? Um, 
Bedside confession is, is always very interesting. Cause I can only imagine, like, as a nurse or you know somebody who has, is working that the kind of stuff they hear just before someone passes away. I'm sure it, it would cause people to be stressed out about it. I did do some research on other ones, and there was one. There was this old lady, and she used to always have eight crosses around her bed in hospital. And if they finally came out and said before she died, "I put a cross up for every soul I took," and that's what the last thing she said before she died. Fuck. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine like hearing that before someone dies and you were caring for this person for, you know, a couple of weeks while they're in palliative care and that's the last thing you hear from them. So very stressful for the people that work in that industry, right? So Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'd be able to carry a secret without like dying from the inside out. I don't know. But people do it. Yeah. No, for sure. Okay, so we sure hope that you enjoyed it. And if you want to share some deep, dark, deathbed confessions that you're privy to, you can email us at somewheredpodcast at gmail.com. Or on the Twitter at somewheredpod. Or at our website, somewheredpodcast.com. If you haven't done so already, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen, and you'll never miss an episode. And if you're so inclined, please leave us a decent review so that other like-minded weirdos can discover the show. Deathbed Confessions of Some Weird by... Some Weird. Gave us those warmer up, Reek. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah. I think Game of Thrones, that's what I think of. <laughs> <laughs>